welcome to Episode 8 of the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past episodes at hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. This episode, we're going to do something a little different, and we're going to explore spirituality and veganism with Lisa Levinson, the co-founder of Vegan Spirituality and the Interfaith Vegan Coalition. She also works for the National Goose Protection Coalition and will share a bit about her work saving geese from Roundup and Slaughter. But first, I want to talk a little about the topic today. And even though I have dedicated myself to veganism and vegan education and activism for 30 years, I've always felt that just vegan isn't enough. I believe that we need really as a human society, a fundamental consciousness shift, really a spiritual awakening, just getting everyone to eat veggie burgers. I, I feel like it's not enough. I feel like we could easily slip back into killing animals and harming each other and the planet. If there isn't truly a, like a deep shift in our psyche, at least a shift in our priorities as a society. And really embracing our compassionate nature, because I believe we have to have respect and reverence for all life to really turn the corner on every issue that we face globally, from climate disruption to racial divides and racism to the suffering of the animals. I don't think that any of this will truly heal without major shifts in our societal consciousness. Now, I don't feel that religion or spirituality has to be the way to do this. I certainly don't feel that we must have religion or spirituality. But for me, and for a lot of people, I think we see spirituality as a natural ally in this shift, a tool to help us awaken to a global compassion but before we bring in Lisa, I wanted to talk about a question out there that most vegans hear at some point about plant life. So the question goes something like, so what's the difference between killing plants and killing animals? Don't plants feel pain? And I want to explore this question because I've had some interesting thoughts on it, or I hope that there are interesting thoughts on it. Uh, but when we get this question... I think most people that are making this argument are really, they're just trying to have a gotcha moment. I don't think they're really thinking it through thoroughly. But there are other people that, that I've had conversations with that are more spiritually minded people who evoke this argument about plant life. And these individuals, they really do feel that plants feel pain, that plants have feelings, that they deserve life equally to animals. So why avoid animal foods? We must eat, so might as well eat both. And I know that it may seem very obvious to many of us that there is a huge difference in plant and animal life. But I want to give this claim the full examination and consideration that a legitimate dispute deserves because I have talked to people who really do believe that plants feel pain. And there are books and videos out there making the claim that plants feel pain and feel sensation similar to pain. These are completely unscientific claims. And if we want to start with the science, scientists have done extensive research on this question. 
where does pain begin in an organism? Where does sensation begin in an organism? They've even looked at where does consciousness, sentience, sensation, emotion, where does this begin in an organism? And the conclusion that science has come to is that plants do not experience pain or any of those other things I mentioned, uh, that you need a central nervous system or something equivalent and plants do not possess this. So going with science, it's pretty straightforward. Plants don't feel pain. But the folks that believe this, I don't think they're concerned with the science. I think it's more on a metaphysical level that they believe this. So let's explore it. Okay, so let's start with what we do know. Ask yourself this question. Would you rather mow your lawn or hit a dog? Would you rather weed the garden or kick a chicken? There's a drastic difference. We know inherently through observation of behavior that animals have the capacity to suffer and feel pain. Step on a dog's tail, see the reaction. It's undeniable. It's the same way we know a baby feels pain. Pain, like I said, is a lower brainstem function that all animals, avians, and fish equally possess. Unlike plants, animals cry out when in pain. They struggle to get away from physical harm. And I don't think that the, the people that think that plants feel pain, I don't think that their argument is that animals don't feel pain. But I also think it's important to establish what we absolutely do know, and that is that animals have rich emotional lives, they suffer in misery and farming, and they want to live. I think that it's really interesting to look at people who are close to all this and who both harvest plants and kill animals. And I'm talking about small-scale farming, do-it-yourselfers, um, people who do backyard slaughter, people who have killed animals with their own hands and also have gardens and pick fruits and vegetables. It's really telling to read their accounts of killing animals in their books and journals and, and online. Even people who are adamant carnivores and who have written books on the virtues of meat eating, they recognize that there is something very different about killing an animal compared to picking an apple. They recognize that animals are sentient beings, that they're individuals with emotions and emotions that, that they need to soothe in this horrible process. They seem to really like crave ritual around the experience of killing an animal, trying to make it more meaningful. They talk about honoring the animal and write about it very differently than about casually picking a cucumber. These authors will articulate guilt even and convey discomfort over killing animals themselves. Some express that they don't want the animal to have died in vain and will relish the meat and share the meat to make sure this doesn't happen, even though they never talk about the vegetables this way. <laughs> this kind of concern and hand-wringing, it's never expressed for the string beans. They recognize that killing an animal is a matter of blood and suffering and a much more significant mortality, so much so that they try to minimize the misery of the farmed animals' lives and the pain of their deaths, even though 
killing an animal is, I mean, it's a messy, horrible process, no matter how humane you try to do it. And some of these accounts of these grisly botched slaughters I mean it's awful where it seems like the animals couldn't have suffered more it's just unimaginable I have some of these accounts in my book the ultimate betrayal if you're interested in reading them there is a reason that there's no such thing as humane zucchini happy carrots cruelty-free cabbage (laughs) People that are close to this process of harvesting plants and killing animals, they know that there's a huge difference, even if they still eat meat. Okay, with all that said, I'm not opposed to speculating that we might not know all the facts yet, that metaphysically plants may be perceiving something on a level that we can't measure at this time. If this is the case... And plants are experiencing some sort of sensation of discomfort or even pain on some level, then it's even more critical that we eat only plants, that we eat a vegan diet. Here's why. A person eats less overall organisms, both plant and animal, when you eat vegan, because farmed animals eat plants too. When you eat animals, you kill and eat plants, and you kill and eat animals and the plants the animals ate, causing more overall killing. So if we're accepting the premise that plants feel pain and we want to minimize suffering, when you eat only plants, we are reducing the amount of individual entities affected. Robert Grillo of Free From Harm states in his book Farm to Fable, quote, even if plants were discovered to be sentient, Raising animals for food requires vastly more feed crops than eating plant foods directly from the source. The principle of harm reduction would still logically and ethically compel us to eat plants over animals. So even if it were true that plants feel pain, a vegan diet would still cause the least suffering. If we want to be sensitive to all life and live with a light impact, Killing the fewest life forms with a vegan diet is a beautiful expression of that compassion. And it's better for the planet. It's better ecologically. It's better for your health. Overall, there are so many critical and crucial and wonderful reasons to eat vegan. So if you are ever asked about this, if plants feel pain, here's two good answers for you. One is... Well, would you rather weed your garden or kick a chicken? There's a huge difference between plant and animal life, and we know that inherently. Another great short, quick answer is, when a house is on fire, who do you rescue? Do you rescue the fern or do you rescue the cat? We know who would suffer. So I'd really love to bring on our speaker now. Today we have Lisa Levinson. She directs In Defense of Animals Sustainable Activism Campaign, which offers emotional and spiritual resources for animal activists. She also co-directs the Wild Animals Campaign. She founded Vegan Spirituality to explore veganism as a spiritual practice. And she co-founded the Interfaith Vegan Coalition, which provides resources for faith-based vegan advocacy. 
she also started Public Eye Artists for Animals to teach compassion for animals through the arts and the Toad Detour to help migrating toads safely cross the roads in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So she has a long history of helping animals. Welcome, Lisa. We're so happy to have you. Thank you, Hope. It's a delight to be here. Wonderful. So let's get started with why and when did you go vegan? And how did that lead you to activism? What, what is Lisa's story? Oh, well, so it's the long and winding road. <laughs> um, I actually think that I was born this way, as they say. I do believe that I had the heart of a vegan, even though I grew up um, with the standard American diet. I definitely loved animals. And when I did make the connection between an animal that was on our plate and the actual animal, I would instantly refuse to, to eat um, that animal any longer. Um, but I didn't really have a lot of agency as a child. So I remember telling my parents, oh, well, I want to be vegetarian. And my dad said, well, who's cooking for you? And oh. I thought, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, so I just uh, kind of grew up really doing what they did. But then when I went out on my own in college, I was able to learn more about what it meant to be vegetarian at that time. There, I really never heard of the word vegan. Um, but once I got the hang of being vegetarian, I worked at a health food store and made that shift pretty quickly on. Uh, also, I had a stint where I was a intern at a place called Hidden Villa Environmental Program, and I did environmental education with children, and it was a really wonderful experience. We lived on the farm, and it was a small working farm, and there we had animals. Of course, we were taking care of them as the interns, <laughs> and I learned while we were there that they actually um, killed the animals at the end of the year, which was really distressing for me. And they literally divided them up uh, between the people who, who lived on the property. And so the animals that we raised and we took care of were sent to slaughter. I can actually remember the day that Brownie, the cow that we actually watched get born, <laughs> when he was taken off to on, in the truck, I ran down the road. I was upset. I was crying. I, I just thought this was terrible. So, but at that point, I had already made that choice to be vegetarian. And then fast forward to uh, graduate school, which I did in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And while I was there, I was like looking around to kind of associate myself with some, some new people, some vegetarians, and I found this macrobiotic community. So at that time, I was in my uh, early or maybe mid-20s, I met up with a woman who's actually become quite famous, Christina Perello. She uh, was a macrobiotic chef. She was also vegetarian. And at that time, when you're vegetarian and macrobiotic, you are vegan because you're not consuming any dairy products. And so that's really how it happened, how I became vegan. I didn't know the word until years later and then started to do some more research on animal rights and understood even more uh, why that was the way to go. Yes. <laughs> so, and no eggs too, right, for vegan? Oh, definitely. No eggs because they the macrobiotic um, community doesn't eat eggs, at least to my knowledge. So we were 
no dairy, no eggs, um, even no, no honey as well. So it really was vegan. Mm -hmm. And I learned quite a bit from Christina, who's a fabulous chef. And that got me on my way to cooking and preparing healthy vegan food. And then over the years in Philadelphia, I actually was a mosaic mural artist for many years. (laughs) And while I was doing that, I was going into a lot of inner city communities and working with different nonprofits. And we would go into the communities and often there'd be animals in there. And we would end up like rescuing dogs. I would end up helping feeding cats. (laughs) And so this uh, also started the um, animal rights piece that went along with the, the vegan vegetarian lifestyle. So what is the Interfaith Vegan Coalition and what do you do? And also has what you do changed with, of course, the the pandemic that we're in? Sure. So the Interfaith Vegan Coalition, it's really a group of individuals and organizations that have banded together to get the vegan message of compassion out into spiritual and faith-based communities. And we do this by providing various tools, uh, such as we put together these interfaith kits. They're vegan advocacy kits, and they're specific to each religion. So for example, if you're Catholic, there's a Catholic advocacy kit that contains poems and it has articles and stories and event ideas and even different spiritual practices and ceremonies that might be used within your tradition that you can then take to the leaders of your community and ask them if they might be willing to host these types of events or to slowly begin to integrate vegan values into their place of worship. And so we have them for different, all different kinds of traditions from uh, Sikh to uh, Judaism to um, we have paganism, we have a whole series of them, and they're available for people to download on our, our website, which is the interfaith, it's just interfaith vegancoalition.org. And what we do as a coalition, we actually have a voice as a a group of religious and spiritual practitioners to put together uh, media releases with uh, statements. We also go to various spiritual events, such as the Parliament of the World's Religions. We went there in 2018, actually, and we had a table. We had vegan food that people could try. We also had uh, videos people could watch and we did some vegan advocacy. We passed out brochures and talked to people of faith about veganism and why that is an important next step. So it's a great opportunity for us to do advocacy work and we also have tools to help people who are vegan in these communities that are within the communities who may want to encourage their place of worship to adopt vegan values and practices. Wonderful. So you've moved into this world of the spirituality and veganism connection. Why do you think that spirituality is important to veganism or what, what is the connection between spirituality and veganism? Well, to me, veganism and spirituality are deeply intertwined. In fact, they are one and the same. I would say that my connection to spirituality is through my compassion for all living beings. And I think that is the foundation of veganism. It's about 
the love that we share and the life force that is surrounding and within us and that all of this is bound together by the spirit of love and that there's really no difference between the love that we might share between one another and the love that we might share between different animal companions or animals we come across in the wild um, or different spiritual connections that we might have. So vegan spirituality uh, really looks at the, the spiritual nature of all beings, which includes all of the animals. Mm, yeah, beautiful. We're, I'm, I'm curious if you were raised in a religious household or what brought you to spirituality? Well, my household that I grew up in with my immediate family, um, we, I grew up Jewish and we did attend, I attended Hebrew school and we celebrated the major holidays, but we were reform, which is the practice that we had was more following the, the major holidays. And we, we didn't celebrate the, the weekly Shabbat or keep kosher or anything of those, that kind. But we did attend a synagogue for major holidays. We did, I did have a B'nai Mitzvah with my sister, which is a coming of age for adolescents. The deeper part of my spirituality when I was growing up was connected to my grandparents because my grandfather was a rabbi. And he was a rabbi in the reform movement. And so I grew up with him, learning from him and understanding the, the importance of spirituality and of religious practices and the significance that they had in our lives. So for me, it was a connection to my grandparents. And then um, as I grew up and explored, I actually was very interested in Eastern religions and college. And then beyond, I was also exploring some uh, Wiccan traditions and, and a lot of uh, women's spirituality, including Jewish women's spirituality. So I did explore in all those ways. And it was almost, I really felt like, I know there's a tale about uh, I think it might be a duckling who's looking for her mom or looking for her parents. And she looks, are you my parent? Are you my parent? Um, in a way, I was doing that with spirituality. I was looking to try to see where did I fit? And do I fit in the Buddhist community? Do I fit in this? And I, this other community, the Wiccan one. And every time I delved a little deeper, I found out, hmm, this, this piece of it doesn't quite fit. And in the Jewish tradition, I was... At that time, I'm a little frustrated with going to some of the holidays and then always hearing these stories about sacrificing animals, and that did not resonate with me. And so I was really searching for something that, that did resonate, and then realized that veganism and spirituality together, that was my spiritual calling. And I was at that time leading a group, an animal rights group called Public Eye Artists for Animals. We were a group of artists in Philadelphia who had joined together to teach compassion for animals through the arts. And while we were doing this, we really built a wonderful community of people, including actors and, and musicians and singers who were very talented. And we would put together veggie cabarets and uh, we had the full on theater productions that we did. Um, many were funded by the Culture and Animals Foundation, which is quite an honor. And part of, part of what we did is we started to really engage with the community and we had a kids club for 
to support uh, vegan kids and other kids who wanted to join in. And we also hosted a another group that was a spiritual group. We started to say, well, one of our our members said, I'd like to have a vegan church. She was feeling disconnected from her church because they would often have events that had non-vegan food. And we, we, several of us were thinking, oh, I have that experience at the synagogue, or I have this experience when I go to the Wiccan gathering. So we all decided, let's create our own group. And Sandy Herman, one of the members of our group, had been playing around with the phrase vegan spirituality. And so we, we adopted that as the name of our group. And we met. And our, our goal was really to explore veganism as a spiritual practice and bring in the concept of ahimsa and also uh, looking at the common ground between all of us, even though we were all from different religious backgrounds. So I think that brings together the, the different pieces that, of this puzzle that, that started the vegan spirituality. Mm, wonderful. And and you have online gatherings now, I believe, the Vegan Spirituality online ga- gatherings. Is that? Yes, exactly. So our group that met in Philadelphia was very successful. We actually decided we would host a retreat. And this is many years ago, I think in 2009. And we, we were surprised to have 50 plus people show up at it. And we realized that there's maybe a need in the community for this. And so we started hosting a vegan Thanksgivings and retreats. And we had our group. And then I, at that time, had moved back to California and started a Los Angeles chapter of our vegan spirituality group. And then other people had reached out saying they wanted to start their own chapter. So we had group people reaching out from different places, such as Olympia, Washington, and Tucson, Arizona, and uh, just different places, New York, um, around the country, even places in Florida that wanted to do their own group. So we started expanding. And then there are different groups that meet locally in person, and they all run independently and focus on the idea of vegan spirituality. So at one point, we thought, what about people who live in remote areas or who can't actually make it to any of these events? So Judy Carmen and I decided to start these online gatherings where people could join in and really experience the same type of community connection, even though we lived in different areas. So we called it our Vegan Spirituality Online Gathering, and we've been meeting for a few years. And these gatherings include an interview with a vegan spiritual leader, and they share about their practice, and we discuss what they're doing and how that's impacting our vegan spiritual movement. And then we also have a, a closing prayer or intention that we share. So it's a nice gathering and anyone's welcome to join in. You can actually sign up going to um, idausa.org forward slash vegan spirituality. And then you'll get the registration form to, to tune in. We host it once a month. It's usually the second Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And that's something that we host live, but you could also just sign up and get the replay and you can watch it at any time. That's great. And I know that you had a large retreat scheduled for this year, the Vegan Spirituality Forum and Retreat. Uh, But of course, because of the pandemic, it's probably kind of unknown if if you're going to have it or not. Do you you want to talk about that a little bit? Because it's a a really um, wonderful idea to have 
be able to come together from all over the country. I hope it can happen at some point. Yes, certainly. We're very excited about this event. It's a vegan spirituality forum and retreat, and it's actually titled the 2020 Vision, uh, creating a world <laughs> a world that works for all. So we might have to retitle it if we're going to extend it into the 2021. Yeah. However, this is an event that's been like years in the making. Judy Carmen uh, and also Reverend Carol Saunders and myself have been planning it. The goal of it is to really bring to people together for a collaborative, interactive event where we bring people of various faiths who all want to practice faith-based vegan advocacy. So this retreat, although it does include walking the labyrinth, it's going to be hosted at the Unity Village, which is a lovely grounds and also the home uh, of the founders of Unity, that spiritual practice and tradition and so we're excited to be on the grounds and where, the and where is that it's near kansas city in missouri which are back to back and it's going to be at their their grounds so they have a convention center there called unity village and that's where we're going to host this wonderful retreat, which is going to have elements of self-care and uh, personal reflection, along with community rituals and ceremonies. And all of this is going to be giving people the tools and also experiential foundations for practicing vegan-based advocacy at their place of worship. The main difference between this retreat and other retreats that we've done in the past is that this one is focused on faith-based advocacy. So we're really encouraging people, whether or not they're vegan, to come and to join us and to learn how to approach veganism in their place of worship. So these are the main goals that we have, and we're bringing people of diverse backgrounds together to do to have speakers. Our speakers are Dr. Milton Mills, Victoria Moran, and also Dr. Lisa Kemmerer, who's written a book on world religions and animals. So we're excited to bring together these different leaders, but we're also going to have workshops where people get to learn, like, how does Jewish veg accomplish their vegan advocacy? We're going to have their director of programs come and talk to us about the programs that she's put together that have been very effective. And so we're going to also have people in different communities. It's like a, a real collaborative feeling of networking and sharing tools so that people can bring them back into their places of worship. And so we're definitely going to have this event, and it may be this year, it may be next year, uh, but you're welcome to check it out. Registrations are open. Uh, the retreat webpage is The Spiritual Forum dot org forward slash vegan dash retreat and if you go there we also have on our facebook page on the vegan spirituality facebook page we have this event listed where you can learn more about it you can sign up for it and any registrations taken will be honored for the following year if it is rescheduled due to the pandemic. We're also going to be hosting the Religion and Animals exhibit that was curated by Dr. Lisa Kemmerer. And that exhibit includes panels 
that have descriptions and quotes and animal advocacy that's been taking place in each religion. And we have these for all of the major religions and it's a wonderful traveling exhibit. If anybody's interested in having this exhibit come to their place of worship, you can contact um, me or you can reach us out to the Interfaith Vegan Coalition at interfaith at idausa.org just to find out more. And we're also putting together little brochure versions. So if you're not able to have the exhibit travel to your place of worship, you could say, hey, I'd like to order the vegan brochure version of the panel for that exhibit. So we're really trying to get this information out there to a broader audience. Yeah, that's great. And I, I'm really excited about the forum, the retreat. I, I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be able to go. We'll have, we'll just see what life is like whenever it is happening. Uh, but uh, you mentioned a couple of website addresses and I'll put those in the show notes. So anyone that's interested in learning about the retreat uh, and also the art exhibit you were talking about, uh, I'll put those links in the show notes. Okay, so let's see. Another aspect to this that you work on is sustainable activism support, like support for animal activists. Uh, and I know you have the animal activist support line. I'd love for you to talk about that. Uh, it, it can be traumatizing, really, for people when you first hear about all the horrors that animals endure. And also, I think there's two, and, and I've experienced this, a collective kind of uh, trauma that can happen over years and years of, uh, you know, having to be exposed to the videos and the and just the the horrible things that happen to animals i know for myself i have to really compartmentalize and go into those videos and that information with with kind of shields up you know to protect myself but i have to do it it's part of my my work my my job and my life that i want to help these animals so we must you know, know about it, it can be, you know, mentally exhausting. So I think that this is really an important aspect. So please, please talk about this, the, the animal activist support line and sustainable activism support. Sure. Thank you for mentioning this and describing how it feels, because that is often what we experience on our support line. We run a animal activist support line that we've been doing this for several years at In Defense of Animals. That was the idea of Dr. Marilyn Kroplick, and I have helped to manage it. And um, I also have a background in uh, group therapy. I, I worked as a therapist for many years at the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. And so I've been bringing those, those skills into uh, my current work at In Defense of Animals, trying to support animal activists. So when people call us, they share about their struggles and it can be from a variety of things. It may be personal struggles that's, that are causing them difficulty with their animal activism, or it could be something going on in our community. Like just recently, we had uh, Regan Russell, who is an activist who was killed by a slaughterhouse truck during a protest in Canada. And so activists have called our support line, uh, reaching out for, for some compassion and for some counseling to try to deal with the emotions that come up, grief, uh, anger, 
sadness. And so we do counseling in the moment. We also have an extensive list of vegan therapists. So when people contact us and they want ongoing therapy, we're able to refer them to therapists who understand and, and also adhere to their vegan values. We also have different resources that we've gathered through the years. We have a resource list that you can access through idausa.org forward slash resources. And that has mental, physical, and spiritual resources listed there for anyone who's interested. One of the favorite and most popular resources that I like to share is for compassion fatigue, which is what happens when animal activists and also people in other fields, in the healthcare field in particularly, people can become overwhelmed, they can become frustrated and even depressed over time from dealing with ongoing trauma and even first responders feel that trauma and animal activists who are on the front lines also experience this type of trauma from witnessing animal abuse. And this can happen whether you're caring for animals in a rescue situation, working at a farm sanctuary, or if you are watching videos for your job or happen to be watching them while you're signing petitions on social media. So this is a very important piece of self-care is to try to prevent and heal from compassion fatigue. So we put together a page of resources um, and that website is um, idausa.org forward slash compassion fatigue and there are videos and there are articles and all sorts of helpful tips right there on the page as part of what i've done for activists i have hosted sustainable activism webinars where we've interviewed people in the animal rights community and also psychologists who specialize in dealing with compassion fatigue to share their tools and resources. So it's a great, another great resource that you can access from the Compassion Fatigue page or from our resources page. Um, there are years of different webinars that are specifically created for activists. And we have interviewed Anita Kreitz of the SAVE movement, who is now really being impacted by the death of um, Regan Russell. And we've also interviewed people who are compassion fatigue therapists, such as Jennifer Blau, who uh, runs a special podcast on compassion fatigue. So there's so many resources out there and we're really just trying to help direct people towards them. And so encourage people to take a look at our, our website and um, also you can find on our events page, idausa.org forward slash events. You can link directly into these sustainable activism webinars and also you can join in. We have a support group that we lead online and we've been doing this as well for several years and people all around the country join in and you can find more information about that on the events page. I facilitate the group and we have people who join in just to talk with other activists and get a sense of camaraderie, um, perhaps acceptance and even encouragement for the projects that they're working on. Yeah, that's great. I, I think that's really important work, necessary work. And yeah, I, I, I feel it even, if, you know, I've been doing this work for 30 years and I've always been able to really compartmentalize 
very easily. Uh, for many years, I could watch any video, the worst of the worst of the torture of these poor animals, and just go on with my day and it was fine. But that has kind of shifted for me, maybe in the last five years or so, where sometimes these videos will send me off in, in tears for the day, you know, mm -hmm. uh, where it's just, I don't know if I've reached a saturation point <laughs> after 30 years of it. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's true. It's, um, it's fatiguing. Uh, I think compassion fatigue is a good way to describe it. People don't realize what activists have to endure day in and day out uh, and not just animal activists, but anyone who is, you know, working for the welfare of others, just to to live in another's trauma is, um, you know, having that empathy, so much so that we're willing to dedicate our lives to trying to help and to stop these horrors. It certainly affects your psyche, uh, and it's good that we. It's good to do that self-care and to try to be sure that it's not affecting us so that we can do the work in, in the most effective way that we can. Oh, definitely. And there's more, a little more to it. There's self-care and there's also something called community care, which uh, Paul Gorski has done some research on animal activists. And he found that a lot of activists end up dropping out of the movement for other types of broader systemic issues such as racism, sexism, and bullying of different kinds. So that is another piece of what we're trying to educate people around when they join the animal rights movement to let them know that we have to also be mindful of these other um, isms that come into our lives and that can be very draining as well. Yeah, and care for each other and support each other uh, in the work that we do because it's critical that we all are at our best and uh, and feel comfortable and safe in our activist spaces, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I want to switch focus just a little bit. And since we, of course, love birds here at UPC, I wanted to ask you about your new National Goose Protection Coalition, and this is a campaign against wildlife services. So uh, tell us a little about that, what wildlife services is, and what this coalition is doing to help geese. Sure. Yeah, we started this coalition uh, because we've been receiving different concerns about geese uh, from our supporters and and people who care about geese and don't want to see them being rounded up and killed in their communities. So we put this together as an effort to provide resources and also um, mentorship and assistance. So for example, if, if a community hears about a roundup, they can reach out to us, we can do a... So tell us, what, what is it that's happening? If, if, what, start from the beginning. What happens to the geese? Why are these roundups happening? What, how does it work? Who does it? Yes, good question. <laughs> so many people don't know this, that if you live in an environment, perhaps there's a little water in your housing development, a little pond, and then you'll find that there's waterfowl there. You'll find different birds and geese may come 
and then often there's droppings that are left and people in these housing developments get upset and they don't like that so they'll make a complaint perhaps to their um, housing association and then the housing association might uh, reach out to the USDA with their complaint or to their Department of Natural Resources statewide and when they do this the complaint gets registered and a contract is often set up between wildlife services to come in and kill the geese and essentially it's it's really horrible genocide of these geese because what happens is they're rounded up literally they are put in little fencing enclosures that encourage them to go in a central location and then they're put into uh, crates they're separated from their families and geese are among the most family bonded of birds and for them to be separated they they do this generally while the birds are molting which means uh, it's the time where the birds have their young and their feathers are changing so that they cannot fly during this time and that's the time where you'd think that we would be giving them their peace and privacy to be able to raise their young that's exactly the time when these roundups occur and because they can't fly away because they can't fly away they are also there with their babies and they separate the babies from the parents um, they generally kill the babies and also the parents are they call it euthanized but they're gassed and gassing when this refers to geese is terribly traumatic and painful because they hold their breath they're designed to hold their breath in low oxygen at high altitudes and also underwater and so their death is not a quick and easy one it's a painful traumatic and can last for up to 40 minutes to an hour so this is a traumatic experience it's cruel and it's because it's so such an awful experience to watch the geese get upset of course they're vocalizing this is usually done in the wee hours of the morning before people get up so that when they wake up people who care about the geese who are used to coming out and feeding the geese they'll see just a few little feathers left over and it's just painful for people who care about geese to find out after the fact that they've been rounded up and slaughtered mm. often these are referred to as a charity harvest one way to get buy-in from the local community is that the flesh of the birds is going to be donated to a charity to a food bank however no reputable food banks will accept goose flesh because it is tainted with poisons because they're in waters that are laden with different pesticides from the runoff from our agriculture and also from different types of um, chemicals to prevent the algal blooms and other things in our waterways they're swimming in this they're ingesting it and they have a high toxins in their flesh so it's dangerous for people to actually consume it and in addition a lot of the slaughtering that takes place is is done illegally because most of the 
processing plants are specialized for chickens and for animals that are in grown, as they say, raised or in controlled environments. And so you're really mixing the wild different types of bacteria with the types, uh, with, with the different the domestic yeah the domestic that's exactly it's the mixing the wild with the domestic in the slaughter process and these machines are notoriously difficult to clean and so a lot of the mixing can cause these contaminants to wind up in the food uh, that people who eat animals will end up eating And the geese are killed by wildlife services. And I just want to be clear, they're a, a, a government organization that is, their sole purpose really is to go out and slaughter wildlife in numerous different ways in different settings. And they kill just millions upon millions of animals yearly, all kinds of different animals. So what does the National Goose Protection Coalition do, your coalition, to, uh, to help with this situation? Well, first of all, we've joined together with other people across the country who may be running their individual um, local groups to protect geese, or they might be individuals who are concerned about geese in their communities and want to help. And so we've joined together, first of all, to share resources, because that's important. We communicate with one another, and if there's a roundup in one community, another person from a different community might share, here's some humane methods you can reach out to your local authorities about. So we really have an opportunity to network with each other, which is important. We're not all isolated, we're connected. And the other things that we do is we, through In Defense of Animals, we can send out media releases to alert the public about what's going on. As I mentioned, this sometimes happens in the cover of night and nobody is aware until it's already occurred. But what we're trying to do is provide people with resources and also access to communications, our communications team that can send out media releases beforehand and maybe stop these roundups before they happen and create a plan to prevent future ones. So we're working with local communities to put together uh, these media releases. We're also creating petitions and we're creating billboards for the community to call out the decision makers and make sure that other people are aware of what they're doing. Um, Another program that we're involved in is a research project to look at statewide all across the United States what the financial impacts of this. How much are communities spending on these roundups and are they effective and how much a taxpayer money is being wasted. So we have a few different angles that we're looking at and we hope to share these in the coming months. Yeah, it's so it's so upsetting to think that this is all because, you know, there's some droppings around, you know, there's some poop uh, around an area and someone complains and probably that someone just wants the poop cleaned up. They have no idea that they would go and just kill all the birds. You know, and that's probably not what they wanted, uh, you know, but that's what's the cheapest and easiest thing to do probably for them. So yeah, it's really important work to uh, to try to find alternatives and to bring, bring community awareness that that is the possible outcome for these birds is they're just going to get slaughtered. So really great work. Yeah, thank you so much. We feel it's important because there's a lot of myths out there. Um, Geese are blamed for 
contaminating the water, which is actually mostly caused by human leaky septics, and they get blamed in ways that they're, it's not really their fault, let's say, that these things are happening. The poop, for example, actually is a great fertilizer. And it, in some communities have created a business of packaging it up and selling it. So there's a lot of, there are alternatives in place. It's actually something very doable. And there's many communities out there who've been successful and have now a program where the geese are either resident geese who are there in smaller numbers, or the geese are migrating after their molt. And so there are these success stories and we are hoping to encourage different communities to adopt these methods so that we can have more and more success and hopefully turn the tides and maybe prevent the USDA from becoming wealthy at the expense of these suffering geese. Well, we're just about out of time. We're going to need to wrap it up, but I did want to ask you, what is your vision for a post-pandemic world, your vegan vision for a post-pandemic world, and what gives you hope? Thank you for asking that question. So I'll combine them because one of the things that gives me hope is actually seeing what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, because as I'm watching and seeing people, all kinds of people join together in these peaceful protests and really reaching out for systemic change, I see that this is the future for the vegan movement as well. That when we actually reach that tipping point, that there will be people marching in the streets, that there will be concerted efforts to make systemic change so that we no longer have these slaughterhouse businesses, that it really switches over into a veganomy or the veganomy, however you want to say it, um, our vegan economy. And there are lots of plans in the works, um, but as this is coming into fruition, I really see a lot of harmony and peace. Um, between people and also between people and animals. And there's some beauty in the pandemic where animals started to come back into the cities and they came back into places where they had been forbidden. And I really see that in our, our vegan world that we have that type of camaraderie with the animals, that they come back and integrate with us into our world because we're happy to live with them. We support and appreciate what they bring to our world. And so we're living in this integrative way. And years ago, I was traveling in Brazil and I remember, actually, this might have been in Peru, <laughs> where I was, and it was such a beautiful experience to be in a kitchen there with people preparing, they're preparing um, vegan food and there were toucans just sitting on the ledges. They were, it, they were there, they were support, enjoying the experience of being part of the activity and the people in the kitchen were sharing food with them. And I really see that we would live all in a harmonious way. And also that still definitely leaves rooms for animals who are predatory as well. And just like in Los Angeles, we have mountain lions here and it's 
wonderful to see our community support and advocate for these lions. And I know in other places, perhaps parts of Idaho or Nebraska, places where there are they are killing the mountain lions. Uh, here, our mountain lions are celebrities, and I really see that that this would change for all the animals. All of our relationships with animals will change, and we won't have these animals with, as they call it, bad reputations, like you know, coyotes or skunks, and how there there are a lot of myths about these animals and reasons why you know people don't want to be around them and yet they bring so much to our world so i'm hoping that in our vegan world we have this amazing camaraderie and appreciation for all of the animals and that we can live in harmony with one another i i hope that comes to pass post pandemic <laughs> yes yes me too and part of it is we've got to see it and feel it happening and if we can do that in specific ways and even for a few minutes each day, I do believe that that helps to, to amplify our message and to set our intention. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Do you have any final thoughts and, and how can people get a hold of you? Yes. Well, I'll tell you a couple things. One is, if people are, anyone out there who hears of a goose roundup or is aware of complaints going on, you're welcome to reach out to us at geese at idausa.org. And if anyone who is wanting to experience the Religion and Animals exhibit or wants, has questions about our retreat or wants to start a local vegan spirituality group, you're welcome to reach out to um, me via interfaith at idausa.org. And we will follow up with you and share resources. And we also have our support line, which is idausa.org forward slash activist support. So those are some great ways to get in touch and I look forward to connecting. Thank you so much, Lisa Levinson. It's been a wonderful conversation. And thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. You can support this podcast by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please have hope for a better world for animals and live vegan. Oh,